The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. There's a common misconception in the doing good sector that the people working within it must be wholesome, values-driven, and above things like racism and sexual exploitation. But the reality is that the sector is driven by harmful structures that perpetuate the very things we are trying to fix through our work. I've always found the psychology behind wanting to be in the helping professions fascinating. And more recently, I've become deeply interested in the systems and structures that facilitate doing good. The international development sector is a fascinating expression of how the colonial structures that underpin the sector are the very same structures that caused and continue to cause the damage that development interventions profess to be fixing. The sector has been in the spotlight over the past few years with repeated scandals, including Me Too and Aid Too, as well as the well-publicized safeguarding crises within large charities. Racism in the sector has also come under the spotlight, with the emergence of the Charity So White movement in the UK highlighting systemic racism and power imbalances that permeate the development world. To unpack these issues, I invited the Chief Executive of Oxfam Australia, Lynn Morgan, to chat with us on the podcast. As a relative newcomer to the international development world, Lynn shares her experiences of transitioning into the sector at a very challenging time and proposes some ideas for change. Lynn has spent her career advocating for the rights of disadvantaged peoples and is passionate about using strength-based approaches to engender community ownership and control. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Lynn. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I want to jump right in and ask you something I ask everyone. What does doing good mean to you personally? Well, I was reflecting, actually, knowing that we would have this conversation today. And um, I'm not sure that I've ever really identified with doing good good as such when I'm asked this in workshops and things you know what uh what motivates you what's your essential um I come from a a a perspective that says you know if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem and so I think my inherent motivator and to to answer your question would be well good for me is being part of the solution and how would you say that you express that in your daily life? Is that something that you you kind of relegate to your professional life or is it something that permeates every aspect of your life? Oh, no, I think it's definitely in every aspect piece because it's a commitment to social justice for me. Um, that's That's what it is. That's the motivation. And that, you know, I began my kind of adult life or my 
sort of history of activism clearly identifying as a radical feminist. And so the personal was political was part of my DNA, right? Um, and I like to think <laughs> to greater and lesser degrees, I try to live my life with that appreciation that, you know, what I do is an expression of my values. And it's for me, not possible to hold values in some spheres and not in others. For me, it's the whole shebang. It's my personal life. And as it's as I have been lucky, it's also been my professional life, yeah. Tell us about your journey. You're now the Oxfam Australia CEO. How did you get here? <laughs> well, that is a funny story. As I say, I am lucky to be someone who's had the opportunity to work um, within values-based, you know, purpose-driven organisations for most of my working life, right? So I began my working life in what we then back in the 80s called women's services. So, you know, um, again, feminist-led organisations, in my case, working in alcohol and drugs and homelessness and working particularly with what we at the time called single women, so women without dependents. Um, you know, and so I spent about 10 years in that service delivery space, but a very politically driven, you know, I worked in collectives, as I told my colleagues when I joined Oxfam, you know, my early working life was in collectives. I worked in collectives for as long as 15 years before I went into any other professional form. And um, that's been enormously useful, as it turned out, in my um, sort of the career that followed as a manager and as a leader and et cetera, having that grounding in, you know, I guess what I would call a facilitative leadership style, which comes out of, you know, working collectively, which is, you know, working collectively has a lot of challenges associated with it. I'm sure anyone who's ever done that knows, but it does have centrally a, a deep um, embedding in accountability, all sorts of kinds of accountabilities. And I think if you are going to move into leadership roles of, in other shapes and forms, so, you know, I've worked in government and I've worked in the not-for-profit sector extensively over what is now, goodness me, you know, more than nearing 40 years, in fact. <laughs> I hesitate to do the maths and think, you know, that's about what it is. And so in that, I've worked in lots of organisational forms. I've worked in faith-based organisations. I've worked in membership-based organisations. I've worked in government on a couple of occasions, but I've found that I almost always gravitate back out of government and into organisational forms I find to be more dynamic. Right, So I find the not-for-profit sector to be a more dynamic form of engagement and work. And you know, we'll doubtless talk later about some of the issues with those sectors and those structures, but they do have a, for me, I always found to be a more dynamic engagement with groups, right? And so for the last 10 years uh, before I went to Oxfam, I was working in community health, um, an enormous privilege actually because the premise of community health is that we are working with and for communities in both determining and responding to their health needs as they understand them. And, and community health has uh, a commitment to the social determinants of health, the understanding environmental basis of health and um and so that suited me because that you know reflects my own views but how come oxfam well for a very long time i um have respected and admired the work of oxfam i've been a supporter of oxfam forever you know as long as i've been an adult with 
financial means. I've made contributions in that way. And in my mind, it was always that Oxfam did the work overseas that I was doing locally and that I would be doing overseas if I were there, right? So that's what took me there, really. Yeah, I mean, also, it's, it's a professionally challenging role, but I think it really is the opportunity to work in a legacy-based organisation that has this very deep sense of purpose and these really um, terrific values and commitments about how we work and with whom we work. So the privilege of moving into the role was euphoric almost. You know, I was so excited to have this opportunity. I'm sure you've since discovered that the international development sector has its own very specific challenges around how we work and, um, you know, who we work with and how that dynamic plays out. What did you notice when you came into the role? Yeah, so I hadn't actually given a lot of thought This sounds terrible in one way, but, I mean, I hadn't really had the opportunity to think deeply about what motivates those who identify as sort of either humanitarian or international development people. So, you know, every organisation, every sector has its sort of cultural texture, which um, I'm somebody I love to kind of try and understand that. And and I was very much helped by a colleague uh, who said to me, Lynn, the work that is done in international development is exactly the same sort of work as you have been doing locally, albeit in different settings. That was kind of reassuring and helpful because truthfully, it's quite a, and I say this coming from health, which is is very credentialist in its structure. Um, actually, I found this sector to be similarly have a, a quite an attachment to the theoretical knowledge base, to the history, to the kind of context as it's written and spoken about, um, that does mean you can feel you're entering into a particular kind of milieu that that folks who have been in it for a while, and that's another feature I notice of the sector, is there's a lot of people who have literally dedicated their lives to the sector. Yeah, so I've certainly been challenged in some ways by trying to navigate and understand what are the implications of the lessons I've learned over time to this new context where I am effectively a learner and trying to, yeah, try to hear what's going on. But, you know, your question, I think, what did I find? Well, this is a conversation about power, like it is everywhere, isn't it? You know? Um, And, uh, you know, I've had the privilege as a leader in big organisations of engaging in explicit conversations about uh, work and power, about um, particularly, if you like, human work, with humans, human service work, what are the issues that are confronting us? And, um, you know, I know within Oxfam, as in right across the sector, there's a lot of thinking going into what are the implications of our history for who we are today. And there's huge energy and imperative to uh, subvert, to interrogate, to consider the implications of our history to be very pointed, you know, I came to Oxfam at a time when um, the organisation had been through great and deep reflection about uh, power relationships, if you like, in the field, but I would prefer to say within our confederation amongst uh, differing interests, which, you know, 
in Oxfam is usually expressed in terms of the north and the south. Now, clearly, for those of us who inhabit, you know, live under the Southern Cross, that doesn't always work quite the same way. But the, the principle about interrogating power, and I guess what I would think of as equity, maldistribution of resources across our shared system, I'm very lucky that I'm walking into an organisation globally where that is a live conversation. Yeah, absolutely. The sector itself, as you mentioned, has been rocked by a number of scandals over the past few years. The Me Too, the Oxfam safeguarding and and Save the Children were involved in that too. Allegations of racism, the emergence of the Charity So White movement in the UK. And I would say that much of this criticism is well overdue. Um, and well-deserved, you know, as somebody that's worked in the sector my whole career. On the other hand, though, there seems to be a notion that because charities work in, as you say, the helping or the human sector, that these issues such as such as sexual exploitation, racism, white saviorism, privilege, don't exist or at least don't exist to the same extent that they do outside the sector, what would you say to this? What have you noticed about this? I mean, I'm struck as you speak by the fact that, you know, my prior work was in a sector that had two primary traditions, you know, a welfare tradition, a charitable tradition and a medical tradition, and they both have enormous capacity to be hegemonic. And this is no different, is it? You know, we're working in a sector that has its history you know, it's a part of the colonialist project. It's entirely un, un, unable yeah. to be separated, right? Like we we are, whether we like it or not, a manifestation of that project. So the challenges that are coming now, that are coming in terms of um, race, in terms of feminism, uh, in terms of elitism of all forms, you know, imperialism, they really go to that absolute core of who we are and what we do so by definition they go to our structures our processes our mindsets our priorities and so to be a part of a movement because you know I think Oxfam and and indeed the entire sector is a I I I think of it as a people's movement you know I have a I have an activist history I'm more interested in or as interested in that as I am in operational management so we've kind of got structures that were created to do things you know they're very operational Um, as I say they carry a sort of a legacy of, of power and equity that mean that we are at rapid pace being required to consider exactly how that needs to change in face of the principles we espouse so it's a it's a really live conversation what is it to decolonize what is it to be anti-racist what would it be to truly place issues of of gender and i use that term in its multi-form what does that actually mean we do differently so that's the conversation that i'm interested in being part of and I think for, for many people, it's incredibly challenging to acknowledge, even at that very base level, that the the sector that they've dedicated their life to and their whole career is inherently colonialist. You know, that, that their whole career has actually been perpetuating that colonialism 
under the guise of trying to solve the problems of colonialism. And I think that can be really hard to kind of wrap your brain around as an individual, let alone as an organization that is whose values and whose whole reason for being is completely steeped in, in this, this structure. And I think that's why we see sometimes the pace of change can be glacial <laughs> and sometimes it's pushed along by these scandals that, that come out and people going, Hey, look, enough's enough. Like there's actually criminal activities being perpetuated within these structures because of these things, because of these power imbalances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I long ago formed the view that, you know, and I'm speaking here as a as a white woman of, you know, extraordinary privilege living on unceded land, you know, I long ago formed the view that if folks like me weren't feeling some level of discomfort, power is not shifting, right? So we have embodied within us, we have some very clear indications about whether we're doing things differently and whether power is shifting in how we experience these changes. So I have often said to colleagues, you know, if we're not feeling some discomfort, we're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> so equally, when that discomfort shows up in organisations, in, in, in ourselves as individuals, in the conversations that we're having, we need to learn to greet that as a welcome feature of the necessity for those white supremacist views, mindsets, expectations, assumptions, experiences, opportunities that have been afforded to those of us who sit within dominant cultural context because the practice of change, and this is something I'm quite sort of, uh, you know, I like to talk about a bit, which is we need to be careful that in the discussion we're not simply obfuscating and buying time and avoiding change. My own experience is we need to be focused as concretely as we can on what would be the evidence that change had happened, right? So. Yeah. You mentioned charities so white. You know, I think a movement like that at its simplest, amongst many other things, will do things like look at the senior leadership ranks of many of our organisations. If they discover in looking that those senior leadership teams, those CEO roles, those boards are largely made up, and I don't want to erase my many, you know, black, indigenous and people of colour within this conversation, but if you look at those and you find them to be largely white, well, that's a fixable problem, right? So you can either identify it as a problem clear about what change would look like and I'm I, I concentrate on those things because I'm someone who actually believes that unless and until the right voices are in the room and hold decision-making power then really we are at risk of being caught in a rhetorical debate because we're not experiencing the power shift we say we're seeking to achieve so unless and until I as a white woman leader say I choose not to take that platform because I would prefer to see a, per a person of colour make whatever commentary or statements or views they think might be relevant to the time. Unless we embed those practices, then I think the critique that says that some of the discussion is discussion that's um, not consciously, of course, but is unconsciously aimed at stalling action, right? Absolutely. I mean, 
you point out that there are a lot of initiatives, there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of discussion on how do we shift the needle here. Anti-racism initiatives, another one is localization goals. And there's a lot of talk about them. Localization is one that I think about a lot. There's been so much talk pre-Me Too, pre-Charity you know, Charity So White. There's always been this kind of ethereal goal of localization will happen one day in the future. And that is what we're working towards. But the reality is that those things are extremely difficult to achieve because of the structural racism and inbuilt privilege within these organizations. I mean, I, as an international development worker, have been the person that's been flown in to build capacity in countries as part of localization projects, you know, as that being the goal. And makes you kind of go, well, people's entire careers as consultants in the sector are built around being flown around the world to support projects in the field. So if we really genuinely are going to push for localization, what are the big challenges that are stopping us from actually achieving that? And, you know, I think another really interesting thing now is with COVID, localization has been pushed forward. And that's a great thing. What is it that's stopping the sector from transitioning away from these old power structures to the new ways of doing things? Yeah, and there's probably there's probably a couple of different answers to that, isn't there? I mean, I, personally, I think the capacity building language is deeply problematic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, it's deeply problematic because it's predicated on an assumption that there's plenty of capacity over here and there's none over there and it needs to somehow be built or shared. Now, of course, a, an entirely different view that valued Indigenous knowledges <laughs> that saw capability in a sort of what I've come to describe as, you know, cultural humility. You know, I've learned a lot from my colleagues who work in this space and that sort of language resonates with me when we make an assumption that none of us can claim to be anti-racist in whole, that in fact working to be anti-racist is a daily proposition (laughs) associated with how reflective you are, how much you're prepared to do, what you're doing, and so it is with organisations. You know, how we reorient those relationships to be genuinely peer-based and and respectful and when and and you know I don't want to sweep away all of the complexity and issues that are involved in particularly things like donor expectations so for example there's a live conversation we're having at the moment where often folks coming from a sort of a dominant cultural privilege perspective are often the bearers of the institutional requirements that embed a lot of these practices. So, so for example, you know, um, we at Oxfam have been doing work around our strategic framework and ways of working. And, you know, one of the things that we've really looked a lot at is sort of allyship. And what is the difference between allyship and, and managing programmatic funding? And I'm telling you, there is a world of difference yeah, yeah. <laughs> between those two things. And, and so it is necessary and helpful for us to be candid and, and to map out for ourselves and with our colleagues, with our allies, with our peers, where are these uh, expectations and obligations and requirements coming from and who gets to choose the terms? You know, do, do communities get the opportunity to say, look, if, if that's the deal, we'd rather do without it? 
Franklin, or if if you and this is this stuff about you know do we recognise that our empowerment is bound up together? You know, like how much skin have we got in the game? How willing? How hard are we prepared to go back with a donor to say plainly unacceptable? Unacceptable because it's extractive, unacceptable because it will diminish the agency and authority and autonomy and self-determination of that community. The terms are unacceptable. And, you know, I'm hearing more and more of that sort of conversation occurring in the leadership across the sector about, you know, how hard are we prepared to work with donors of all kinds, institutional and non-institutional, to really work through who owns the problem, who owns the solutions. And, you know, I'm a bit naive in a way, as we've agreed, you know, I come to the sector new from a different set of values, but, or not values, but different experiences. And, you know, I've worked for years on developing strengths-based approaches, right? And once you make a decision that says, I am only interested in strengths-based work i'm only interested in propositions that um and again you know language of empowerment you know i'm not i'm not comfortable with using language that suggests that something about what we as the holders of the funds with all of this sort of dominant cultural privilege we determine you know who gets empowered and how I, 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 that's that doesn't sit well with me so then the challenge is well what are the other ways of working and look i have to say i've seen real shifts not just in my my own organisation, but across the sector in, yes, orienting to this new power ways of thinking and working and trying the strategy I, I think I sense we're taking in some respects is to say, let's acknowledge and name that the structures of the organisation are, yes, born out of colonialist practice. They're also born out of contemporary sort of operational risk enterprise management yes. stuff, right? All very important. You know, I, I, you know I've spent 20 years leading large organisations. I care a lot about risk and, you know, um, effective governance and, and, and all of those things. But I think what we're bringing onto the table is that these things can in and of themselves be inherently problematic to the values that we espouse. How can organisations, so recipients of donor funds like Oxfam, how can they push back to institutional and government donors to actually embed these essential changes in how essentially they do business? How do institutional and and government donors actually adapt that rigorous kind of methodology that they have to be more sensitive to these issues. Yeah, and I mean, I know in our own organisation, there's a bit of case by case about this. So we've just had some really terrific examples, um, one where our colleagues in um, Timor-Leste took exception, I understand quite sensibly, to some contract terms that were being offered relating to IP. And they said, you know, this is problematic for us because the IP would be lost to the local community. So all power to them for picking that up in the first place. Uh, But in answer to your question, what can we do? Well, we can hear that, respect that, and go back to the funding body and say, no deal, we've got a problem here. Now, in this case, we got a change, right? 
really powerful, powerful. In some respects, you could say, well, it's quite a small thing, but I actually think, no, no, these are exactly, exactly the sorts of areas, practical areas in which we we need to be much more uh, conscious. But I think the other part is in how we create the space and room and opportunity for communities to demonstrate they've got this, right? They've actually got this. So... The more we are able to surface, to highlight, to amplify, to demonstrate that actually community ownership, community leadership, community identification of issues and clarity about terms, that's all there if you care to look, if if you make it your business to say the priority here, and we've we've been doing a lot of deep thinking about this and, you know, at a really practical level, how do we bring together the needs and interests of communities that as they've identified them with resourcing opportunities that are non-extractive? Like, how do we do that? And I don't think we've in any way nailed that at all. Like, we're just asking the questions, you know, and starting to work through it. And, of course, I I, I have to be very clear, we are building on decades and decades of awesome practice that individuals, organisations in the sector have, have invested in, but... There's something about the speed of change. There's something about an acceleration happening now, an urgency happening now. And, you know, you talked about Black Lives Matter and, you know, I have the enormous privilege of working with the anti-racism platform across the Confederation and, um, you know, Oxfam Confederation. And as is always the case in liberation movements, there is no lack of clarity (laughs) about what needs to happen, you know. To pretend that we're not quite sure what needs to happen is rubbish. Harder is choosing the top few things (laughs) that we're going to focus on because actually there is so much to be done. But I think, you know, we have a lot of leaders, you know, leaders of liberation movements, leaders of communities who have been able to articulate with such clarity what different would look like. And I think there is an onus, a very strong onus on organisations like mine and others in the sector to respond. So like if I I take our commitment to First Peoples here in Australia, you know, we have very carefully framed our strategic commitment as one of fellowship, fellowship of the leadership of First People in this country and saying the leadership is explicit. You know, the directions being sought are clear. The work is being done. Um, It's up to us to back that in not to recreate some other new fancy agenda that we think might get us where we need to go, but rather to be saying uh, more listening, (laughs) less branding, more listening, more adapting, more changing. I think it's wonderful that Oxfam is doing this deep thinking at this time. I think, you know, so many things have happened that have meant that this should have been done a long, long time ago across the sector, not just within Oxfam, but to be actually practically acknowledging there's a problem here and we need to work out how to fix it. We, we know what the end goal is. It's the how and it's the navigating of the bureaucracy and the system that's enabled this to happen in the first place. 
And we do, I think, you know, it's it's that tricky thing about structures and processes and institutions. You know, th these things are really the intent of individual. That's not the unit <laughs> within the system. It's, as you point out, you know, that these are systems that need to be examined, unpacked and worked through. The trick, of course, is, and I, you, you'll sense this in my remarks in relation to other questions, you know, it's about the sense of urgency. Those folks leading their own communities, their own movements, that there's very, I find very little ambiguity there, right? Like when you're in those spaces, what well, needs to happen and the rate at which it needs to happen and, and how pressing it is and why we must know ambiguity. But you come back into the sort of artifices that we've built, the kind of the systems, the, the, the meetings, the organisations and things slow, right? down. Lynn, I want to circle back around to you and ask, what is it about your work that you're most naturally drawn to? And conversely, what is it that you find most challenging? The grasp that old ideas can have on all of our mental states, ways of working, etc. I think for me as a leader, how you break through that that is challenging. That is challenging. You know, history seems to be such a huge determinant of practice in all of our organisations and, and ways of working. And equally, what is my most favourite thing? Well, probably conversations like this, honestly, you know, really. The, the most important work for me is this work. There is a lot of, if you like, housekeeping that needs to be done in organisations, you know, hygiene, all of that. That is a necessity. And as the people who work with me know I'm, I'm kind of fussy about that stuff I think it matters because I think you know you have obligations to make sure that things are uh, stack up but my real passion absolutely for these conversations right across with anyone anytime really <laughs> you, know, um, you know if only to be balanced with making sure that that is backed in with action yeah know, like my heart sings when I see real change happening and I do see it. I see it all over the shop. And when I do, I feel really delighted. Is there someone that you would say has been a great influence on you in your practice? Oh, there's lots of people. I mean, of course, I have a, a sort of, if you like, a contemporary posse of folks who are doing good work and who demonstrate uh, a beautiful congruence, I think, in the personal and the political, and I'm proud to call them my friends and fellow activists. But, you know, I think historically, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because we have, like everyone, we have a workplace channel at work, you know, where people... And we have uh, anti-racism channel, we've got uh, gender justice channels, you know, and it's really caused me to reflect that a lot of my very formative teachers are now, you know, 30 years old and also people like Bell Hooks, you know, these women particularly, Lord Lord, you know, these folks. And it's a bit of a feature of my own personal history, you know, that when I was beginning my activism, you know, that although I'm a little younger than some of them, we sort of share a, a milieu. And so that remains the case, that actually the teachings of those scholars continue. I listened the other day to a webcast of Eileen Morton Robinson, you know, and, like, it's women like that, really, who, who set the bar for me and who asked me to, you know, step up. Wonderful. Time for some philosophy courtesy of uh, philosopher Kwame Apaya. 
asking, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Oh, well, you've answered it, haven't you? What on earth? It's the planet, clearly. I mean, clearly, you know, the urgency in respect of the climate emergency, like I think any thinking person, and in my case, as as a mother, as a parent, the deep distress I feel at, you know, and no pun intended, the glacial speed of change. Like we have got to be moving quicker than we're moving. Like we really have got to be. And, um, you know, I notice even in my own language, I, I don't talk about climate change anymore. I talk about a climate emergency. I'm of that group of people that are watching that clock ticking going, we, we have to make the shift and we've got to do it right now. Time's up. We're out of time. Mm. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Life's precious. Tell me about someone that you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now. It's not necessarily an individual person, but I gain a lot from the work of our First Peoples team at Oxfam. It's been an enormous pleasure to walk into an organisation and start to work with those folks to understand the work they've done, the agenda that they have, the ambition, several of them, of course, Nagara Murray particularly is closely involved with the treaty work as a as a member of the of, of the assembly, you know. If I look at my my backyard, I I see the work that they're doing as being really um, magnificent. Mm. Excellent. Lynn, where's your favorite place on earth? One of my favourite places is in Ataroa. Wellington is probably one of my most favourite places in the world. But as long as I'm an uninvited guest on this unceded land, I like Cape Common. That's kind of my spiritual home, yeah. What book are you reading? There's a book that actually Helen Zoki, my predecessor, gave me called Balcony Over Jordan. I can't, actually can't remember the author's name. But anyway, that's about the Middle East and I've been enjoying that. I find that I, I absorb geopolitics often much better through the lens of journalists and um, biographers than I do in other ways. And what about podcasts? Do you listen to them regularly? I don't. I've, actually, it's really interesting. Podcasts fall into the new things I've started doing in COVID habits. So I feel like I'm a bit of a podcast newbie. I will be candid though. What I do regularly listen to is Dharma Talks. So it's part of my practice that I at once a day at least spend some time. So, you know, I'm in that space. That's that's the listening I usually do is usually listening that asks me to stop and reflect a bit rather than more ideas because I... I can collect a lot of ideas. Yeah, I'm probably the same. (laughs) Lynn, I want to thank you so much for your time and for being such an engaging and open guest. These conversations are so crucial to shifting the needle and making change happen faster than than it has in the past. We really need to progress things much quicker and I think that the work that you're doing and the examination that you're undertaking of Oxfam's internal processes and structures is a huge part of that so thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. 
Well, thank you for creating such a wonderful platform and giving me another podcast to learn from in my COVID time. Yeah, well, I mean that. I, I, and these folks like you created these platforms for us to have these conversations. Then, you know, this is part of the work, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.